Welcome to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz, a candid conversation as we learn about types of dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, frontal temporal, and Lewy body, and the effects on the people we love. Jill's years of dedication and experience help you adapt, overcome obstacles, and find positive outcomes. It's time for Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Well, hello, everybody. It's a nice summer time, but it's very, very hot all across the country. So I hope everybody's doing okay. I recently realized that I have a lot of new listeners. And I do mean a lot, thousands of you. And so I got some questions last week explaining about going to the doctor and um, when you go to the doctor, what do you say to the doctor? What are some of the tests that they do? What are they trying to accomplish? So I thought I would probably just take some time uh, for those of you who are not regular listeners and uh, really need some things explained, and even some of you who maybe are but haven't gotten a diagnosis yet. So I'm taking a little bit of a different approach today uh, to this because I've talked, you know, many times over the past six, seven years about ways to look at uh, the symptoms that a person has. But that's not what I'm going to talk about today. Today I'm going to talk about uh, when you're at the doctor's office and, and what are you trying to get evaluated, okay? And so if the person's having trouble you know, they they have difficulty in thinking, remembering, learning, changes in their personality. Maybe you should get a, an examination. Maybe a thorough examination would be helpful. So if you do that, um, this will tell the doctor what they can rule out and what they should include in the testing. So the bottom line is they're just trying to get to, you know, what is the person's illness? And if it is a type of dementia, is it reversible? or And can it be treated if it's reversible? Is it a disease? They want to know, you know, sort of the full scope of what your disability is or where your impairment is showing. They also want to see where you can still function normally and successfully. And do you have other comorbidities, like other health problems that need to be treated so that it doesn't make any of your cognition or your memory worse? And then the next thing they're going to do is they're going to do maybe a social and psychological assessment of your needs and figure out what resources you or the family are going to need. So that's kind of what they do. And then they also want to see the changes that you are going to maybe be going through based on what their diagnosis is and trying to help your family deal with it in the future. So what procedures they do will depend on the physician or the hospital you go to. If they're good, if they're good at it, then you're going to get a medical and a neurological examination. They're going to look at what your support system is at home. They're going to assess what you're losing. They're going to assess what you still have. Um, if you don't have a choice in the physician or the services that you need, I would say if you're going to a local family doctor, a local physician that you've gone to for years and years and years, they're not the right person to help you evaluate this. If you have to drive a couple of hours to a big university hospital or something like that, I would certainly do that. If you can do a telehealth meeting, even better. So you can call and try and get an appointment and say, I live six hours away. I can't get there that fast. Can you do some kind of a Zoom with me or a telehealth meeting of some type to try to help? 
Okay, so those are some of the options that you have when you're you're first starting. Now, when you get there, what does that mean? So they're going to do a physical exam just to see if you have any balance issues, if you have any mobility issues at all. And uh, they might check your eyes and make sure that you're seeing okay, you know, you're not having any any issues there. They could check to see how you're sleeping. They could do sleep tests. They can do all kinds of things. Chances are they wouldn't do the sleep test right then, but they may suggest it for the future. And then on the other side, the neurological examination is going to ask you to do some things like with your eyes closed, uh, tapping your ankles or your knees with a rubber hammer. You know how they try and test your reflexes and things like that. Um, What they're looking for there is the functioning of the nerve cells of your brain or of your spine and how all that is functioning together. And then more than likely, the doctor is going to do something called an MMSE, a mini mental status exam. Uh, And they ask you questions about the current date, time, place, uh, things you should know, your ability to concentrate, um, maybe even some abstract reasoning, trying to do some really simple calculations, maybe drawing a, a clock or something like that. They'll ask you birth dates. They'll ask you who's the president. They'll ask you your wife's name and and when you got married or your husband's name, whatever it is. Okay. Um, So they're trying to figure out taking into consideration your education and also the fact that you might be nervous while you're being tested, but it can reveal the problems of functions of different parts of the brain. And it makes a difference to be able to know. I mean, it's one thing if you uh, don't know how many years you've been married, but you do know the date. You're just not good at subtracting it or something like that. Uh, But drawing triangles and circles and something you just saw, you know, should be relatively easy for you. If it isn't, that could indicate some kind of a problem. The next thing they might do is, you know, do some, um, oh, like blood tests, you know, laboratory tests. Um, They could be looking at your blood count to see if you have anemia or you have any type of evidence of an infection uh, that could complicate or be a cause of some type of dementing illness. We know that if we check your blood, we can see a lot of things. There's been a lot of information on the horizon that we're going to have a blood test available to people to come in and see if you have Alzheimer's. They're not there yet. the, The test is ready. They're just not ready for the general public to just come in and take this test and have it be definitive. But they might take a blood chemistry test and... For that, they would test your liver and your kidneys. They're checking for diabetes. Um, They might be looking at uh, your vitamin B12 levels and any other vitamin deficiencies that could be a cause for, you know, a reversible dementia. They can also test your thyroid to evaluate the function of your thyroid gland. And the reason they do that is because thyroids um, can cause a lot of problems. And they are common. Thyroid issues are common in reversible causes of dementia. It can make you feel really loopy and just not on your game and and just feeling like you're not... um, as clear-headed as you could be, or your speech isn't quite right, or you're not remembering things. Sometimes it's as simple as a thyroid problem. So they're trying to determine that. They'll also take tests, believe it or not, for syphilis. Back in the day, syphilis was a common cause of dementia before they ever gave anybody penicillin and stuff like that. 
But just because you have a positive syphilis test doesn't mean that you're going to have syphilis itself or you're going to have some type of dementia, but it does tell the doctor if there's anything that could be contributing to what the problems are, right? So, you know, that's that's really all they're trying do, to do. And usually it's just one little pinprick with a needle, um, which isn't that big of a deal. And if you don't like to get uh, blood drawn or something like that, look away. Have them talk to you while they're doing it. It's it's pretty easy. If you've had some really pretty serious issues and maybe you've had heart issues as well, they might do an EEG, an electroencephalogram. Uh, that records the electrical activity that's going on in your brain. They do that simply by attaching some little wires to your head with um, some kind of paste-like material. It is not painful in any way, shape, or form. But if the person that you're taking to get this done is having memory issues and cognitive issues, it could be upsetting to them. You know, it, it would ju- it's not painful, but it could confuse them. Um, but what they're looking for is are you having any seizures? Are you having any delirium? Is there any abnormal brain function? Sometimes that can happen. They may also want to do some other diagnostic tests like a CT scan or an MRI. Uh, Sometimes they will do a PET scan, but not usually unless you are participating in some type of clinical study. PET scans are super expensive. I wouldn't even want to ask for one because they're about thirty grand, and your insurance won't cover it, and you don't want to get that bill, I promise you. So the reason that they do these advanced radiological scans and techniques is because is because it helps the physician identify any changes in the brain that could uh maybe indicate that you've had a stroke, that you have any other conditions that could cause dementia of any type, or even that you have Alzheimer's disease. Now, I'm going to back up to the the MRI. An MRI is only as good as one you have to compare it to. So if you haven't had an MRI recently and you go into the doctor and they want you to have an MRI, that MRI isn't going to tell the doctor anything off the top of their head. It will only tell them if they can base it off of one that they can look at from six months ago or a year ago or another one in the future. Because what they're looking for is the diameter and the circumference of the brain and if it's had any atrophy meaning loss of mass, loss of size. If you have in certain areas, they can see, you know, like the frontal lobe has had severe atrophy, so judgment and reasoning is going to be off. Um, maybe the if they it's in the temporal lobe, it could have to do with uh, your emotions. It could have to, to do with reading and writing skills and uh, some other, you know, objects. Uh, identifying objects and things like that. If it's on the right side, you could have a whole other myriad of spatial issues, um, how close you are to something, falling up and down stairs, uh, what year it is, what time it is, how old are you, all those kinds of things. So, And the back of the brain is all perception vision, so they would look for problems there if you had uh, maybe a small circumference of the brain. So really, it's only as good as uh, what they can compare it to. A CT scan and a PET scan can see activity in the brain and where the brain is firing. One is less helpful than the other, but uh, can look for strokes and can look for any anything that has gone wrong in, in maybe that way with blood pressure and and um, any maybe uh, hit blows to the brain that you've ever had, those would show up. A PET scan shows the electrical activity of the brain. So it can really see where your brain is not functioning well or working well. 
So they're kind of weird, you know. Um, they're important to a diagnosis, but the problem is they're expensive. And a doctor probably is only going to order those if he just he or she just cannot get to the bottom of what is going on just through talking to you and hours of a neurobehavioral exam. So if they just think they just can't get to the bottom of it, they may order some of those tests so they can have a little bit more data, clinical data, on where the brain is not functioning well. And they they really, doctors, enjoy heavily looking at anything that is clinical. They're not great at seeing you in your own home and listening to people talking about how you're behaving. They need clinical data to establish where there's impairment or where there is an impairment. And so when you take those tests, they're kind of crazy. You lay down on a table and they put your head in and your whole body sometimes um, in something that looks like a really oversized hair dryer. <laughs> like, for all you women that go and get your hair colored and stuff like that, it's like one of those hair dryers that they put over your head, but it's you're laying down. Um, it's painless, but it's super noisy. And it has this banging noise, like they ding, 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 but it's more of a clump, clump, clump kind of noise. And it sounds like the thing is falling apart, but it's really not. Uh, it can be very confusing for a person that's already impaired. So if if it's going to be and they are a little further along and you have pretty significant symptoms, it could help to have a sedative before that person gets in there because they have to lay still. When I have done that, I sing songs to myself in my head. I don't sing them out loud, but I sing like five or six songs so I can get through this 15, 20 minutes because I am super claustrophobic. And if I were to open my eyes and see that this thing is surrounding me, I would freak. I mean, I really have to psych myself up when I go in and do a MRI or a CT scan. It's it it freaks me out. <laughs> it really does. So I that's what I do. I put something over my face and I sing to myself. And I know I have songs in my head in advance that I know all the words to. And I get really long ones like American Pie or um, Hotel California or something that will kill a bunch of the time. <laughs> I don't mean to make a joke out of it, but I'm telling you, you guys, I freak out when I have to have those. So um, you usually have to sign some kind of a form before you do these, especially if you're doing something like a lumbar puncture or uh, any of those imaging things that I talked about, CT, MRI, the PET scan, or SPECT scans. Uh, they usually want you to sign something so that if you reach up and or you freak out and you get out and you hit your head and then really have a problem, they're not they're not going to have to pay for it, right? And it always lists the possible side effects that the procedure can have. But when you read that, it can be kind of alarming. It's like hearing those commercials on TV. Take this medication, but it could cause severe problems, suicide, heart attack, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, why would I ever take that medication? <laughs> I hear those all the time. I'm always shocked at all the things that they list that, oh, this could happen or that could happen or this could happen when you take this this drug. It's kind of the same thing. Uh, they make the procedure itself seem really alarming and dangerous, but they are relatively safe in the scheme of things. And if you have any concerns at all about doing this, just ask the doctor to explain it to you. And take my little um, bit of advice. Sing songs to yourself. Now, they're also going to consider your history. Any past physical or neurological um, behavioral exams that you have taken, any lab tests you've had in the past that they can compare to or they can identify and rule out any um, other causes that could be bothering you. Um, they need those other evaluations to get to the 
ba- you know, to get to the baseline of the medical assessment so they can understand your ability and your deficits and help you plan for the future. Now, if you have other stuff going on, like you're you have anxiety, you have depression. Now, I'm probably going to get a lot of emails about what I'm about to say, but every time I turn around today, somebody is saying they need to stop doing something for their own mental health. Well, good for you. I heard Sean Mendez is stopping his um his touring because his mental health is at stake and there was a a tennis player who didn't want to play because she couldn't take all of the interviews that she did with people. And we, me, I'm speaking, I'm just going to speak for myself. As an older person, I think, my God, how did any of us ever get this far in life? Really? Seriously? You know, I played in bands for years and years and years. I traveled around all over this country. Uh, what did I get out of that besides drug and alcohol problems? Maybe if I would have stopped and said, for my mental health, I need to not do this, I could have avoided all that. Oh, well, que sera, sera. I guess I feel good for people that say they need to stop and do those kind of things. But I just think, um, my God, we are full of a whole nation full of anxiety and mental health issues more than we have ever had. So if any of those people end up with Alzheimer's or they have a family member that says, gosh, they're acting really strange and I'm going to take them and get whatever's going on identified, um, they today are adding psychiatric and psychosocial evaluations based on stuff like that. So they will talk to the family members, um, they will talk to the person themselves, and they're trying to find a basis for a specific plan of care for that person that includes any psychiatric or psychological problems that person may be having and um, evaluate that person's emotional well-being, their physical, their financial resources, um, the home that they live in, the available community resources that they might have, um, anything that they might want to do to uh, participate in the plans that are going to be made for them. Will they be cooperative? There's a good portion of people that are not cooperative in all this. They're going kicking and screaming because somebody's taking them to the doctor. They're, They're also looking seriously if you're depressed Because depression can cause a whole bunch of symptoms that look really similar to having a dementia. And it can make an existing dementia issue worse. And anytime there's a question about depression or a psychiatric experience that this person has had, they probably need to see some other type of doctor. Somebody experienced in, if they're older, geriatrics. Uh, And they should maybe go to a psychiatrist. And depression is common. A lot of people get it. It typically responds well to treatment if the person's willing to do it, take medications for it. But I don't know how many times I've met people with depression that refuse to take medication. And as soon as they feel good, they get off the medication. All those things have to be considered. All of that. And then on top of all that, is the person still working? Are they, are they still, you know, in daily activities? Uh, if they are, they might need an occupational therapist and have that OT ex- evaluate them. Um, what can they still do for themselves? What can we do to help them compensate for their limitations? That's what an occupational therapist does. They try to keep you moving within the realm of what you've been trying to do. Maybe we're going to add rehabilitation therapy. Maybe we're going to add a physical therapist. And they are an important part of the care team because they look at what skills you have in your daily living. 
okay? And what is your potential to continue to work? What is your potential to continue to drive? What is your potential for physical rehabilitation to work for you? So they're just looking for what you can still do and to try to devise ways uh, to help you remain as independent as you possibly can be. And they're looking at your activities of daily living and they try to observe you in your own home in a controlled situation to see if you can manage money, fix a simple meal for yourself, dress yourself, um, bathe yourself, brush your teeth, other routine tasks that you need to do, things like that. So that that's the kind of thing that they are looking for, and they want to see, can they provide some appliance for you or some routine for you or something for you that is going to help you to be successful for longer when you're at home and still working and driving and carrying on. Usually that's in the mild cognitive impairment stage. We're going to take a short break and listen to a commercial about what services and resources I offer with my business, Summit Resilience Training, and we'll be right back to continue this conversation. Living and working with Alzheimer's and other dementias can often be challenging. Summit Resilience Training provides education, utilizing non-medical approaches for those who work with our friends affected by dementia. Believing families still need one-on-one assistance, we provide classes which help them understand the diseases affecting their loved ones, offering strategies and techniques for success with activities of daily living and working with confusing behaviors. We offer in-home assessments to clarify symptoms of dementia diseases and help families work together to find moments of joy while living with memory loss and impairment. Education programs instilling person-centered care philosophies are offered for professional caregivers working in communities and homes, which can be customized for their staff. Training is also available for first responders, such as law enforcement, fire, and EMT personnel. We are passionate that people with dementias, such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and others, are approached with compassion and understanding, and those who work with them have all the tools they need for success. Call us at Summit Resilience Training, 303-420-6988 to schedule a class or in-home assessment. Visit our website at summitresiliencetraining.com for more information. Welcome back to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. Okay, so carrying on, uh, the neuropsychological testing otherwise called a neurobehavioral exam. Um, I think it's called something else, a psychometric testing or something like that. But what it's testing is your cognitive function, your ability to think, your ability to troubleshoot, uh, your ability to remember phrases or a story that they tell you and how many details of the story can you remember. Um, these are things when they're asking you, they are not necessarily things that you would know. Uh, like the story would be something that you had never heard before and they want you to repeat it back as best you can, main details. Um, but there's a lot of things that they're they're trying to assess. They're they're looking at your areas of mental function and where you're impaired and independent intellectual thought. The test takes about three to four hours. It's exhausting. You want to scream, um, but. It's important. And that test evaluates things like your memory, your reasoning, your coordination, your writing skills, your ability to express yourself, um, your ability to understand instructions. You can't stop and say, can you say that again? Because they won't. That's a mark off, just so you know. That's daunting, isn't it? (laughs) Um, They also 
try to see if you are relaxed. If you're not relaxed, they take that into consideration. They also consider your education, your interests, those kind of things. They, on the final part, uh, if a nurse or somebody who's a technician of some type is the person, a social worker, whoever it is, that is asking you the questions, at the end, the um, at the end of the evaluation, the last part is a doctor comes in and sits down and talks to you. Sometimes they do it with the other members of the evaluating team so they can explain to you how you did on the test. Um, they will go through typically all the findings that they that they uncovered. And that takes a while, too. And at the end, if they can't explain what is happening, the, the, the bottom line is they really are trying to give you a general idea of what your prognosis is going to be. They may not be clear on it. Sometimes it's super hard, especially with people who are incredibly intelligent because they can answer certain questions fairly well. The reason they do it for three, four hours is because at some point you might have a breakdown. At some point you might fall apart on the testing and not explain things well and and, you know, I myself have been in home evaluations where I talk to somebody and for the first hour, they seem absolutely fine. But by the time you get to an hour and a half, they're talking in circles. The things that they are saying are not making sense. The areas of impairment become very obvious to me. If they're talking a lot, if they are not explaining something well, if they are getting very emotional, um, those kind of things will tell me a lot, and they will tell uh, a doctor a lot. So now the doctor's sitting here, and they're going through all of the lab tests that you did. Okay? They're going through the blood tests. They're going through everything. Um, they're going through how well you performed your activities of daily living and whatever that evaluation entailed. They talk about the psychological tests of how you answered questions. Did you get frustrated? Did you yell at the doctor or the nurse or the whoever the technician was? Were you anxious? Um, how relaxed were you? If you you can miss some things on the test, it's not like you can't miss a few things. But if you really have a lot of skewed results, that's a problem, right? So they're looking at all of that. And then they're also looking at your social history. They're looking at um, whether or not you were like a super intelligent person and should know all this. Did you ace some things because you are? Or on the flip side of that, if you are a person that maybe isn't terribly articulate, but you're still smart. You may not talk like a geologist or somebody with a PhD, but you're still smart. And you have life experiences, and you may not say things quite the right way or grammatically cor correct, but um, they take all that into consideration. Your social background. Where you grew up, are you talking with a strong southern accent? Can they understand everything you're saying? You know, whatever it is, right? So you should be able to ask questions of that doctor and the team and come away with a, an understanding of where you are on the findings of the evaluation. And if you don't let other people be a part of that, uh, they're already going to assume you didn't do well. I just have to tell you. You should let your family members be a part of it. 
in my opinion, you should ask if your husband or wife or whoever it is uh, could come in and sit with you while they give you the findings. Because if if you walk out of there and you say they didn't really tell me what was wrong, they're going to know something was wrong because the doctor's going to give you at least what they know about what they found out through the evaluation process. And sometimes they're going to make recommendations, you know, for medications like Namenda, Aricept, Exelon, or, you know, community support services or something like that. Um, at UCH Health, they give my information. They say, call her. She will teach you how to live with this disease, right? Uh, they may send you to the Alzheimer's Association. They may send you to the Parkinson's Foundation. They may um, tell you you have diabetes and now we have to give you some medication for diabetes. Diabetes is a precursor for Alzheimer's. So it's something that can be very difficult. Now, sometimes I will say that they may not be able to complete the evaluation in one day. You may have to spread it over more than one day just so that your person doesn't become too tired and then claim that the results were skewed because they were tired. Sometimes it takes several days to get the MRI or the CT scans and things like that, uh, blood test back. You don't always get them back, you know, like in real time. And they have to report those findings to the doctor. And then they put all this information together into a report. So almost always, not always, um, they can do this on an outpatient basis. You may have to go to a local place just to get your blood test taken and stuff like that. But they may be able to do some of this through telehealth, as I was talking to you about earlier. So sometimes we have family members and occasionally we will have some professional, a, psychologi a psychologist, a psychiatrist, somebody like that, advise against putting a, a person that is really, really confused through an ordeal of an evaluation. And I understand that. You know, we want to make sure that that the doctor is giving that person every chance they can to be successful. And if they are upset, they are really struggling, um, the memory and thinking may not be evaluated at its best. Um, it's not unpleasant. I want to say that. It is not unpleasant. The staff that does these tests, they are accustomed to working with people who have memory loss and cognitive loss, and they're gentle. They're generally kind. They're trying to make you feel comfortable. They want you to have your best performance. They don't want you to fail. They're not trying to get you to fail. Sometimes family members don't approach it the same way. They're trying to see if the doctor can see what where the problems are that they see and would be disappointed if you ace the test. Now, that's just the truth. That's just the God's honest truth. And it's not malicious. It's not mean. But they're seeing problems and they want it uncovered and they want a diagnosis. But I can tell you the people that are doing the testing are not trying to make you fail. They really want you to have your best performance. They want you to be on your on your best in, your, in terms of your memory and your cognition. And, you know, the bottom line is there's so many reasons why a person might, you know, develop symptoms of dementia. 
I've said it a dozen times. Some are treatable. And a small amount of those treatable ones are reversible. Again, the thyroid, a concussion. Um, and when I say again, it's because I've had this discussion in other podcasts. Um, uh, it could be medication like Ambien or pain medication that you're taking. Your thyroid, as we were talking about. Your vitamin deficiencies. All those kind of things kind of need to be ruled out, as I was saying. And if if they find out that you have something treatable, that's kind of a bummer because you may have been having problems with that for years and years and years and didn't know it. And other diseases you might have could be found out through this whole process that maybe could have been treated in the past and could have been irreversible if they weren't neglected over the years. That kind of stuff happens all the time. Diabetes is one of them. People that end up with diabetes typically typically end up with memory issues as well. But if you can work on that and, and take care of your diet, and it's not always caused by diet. It could be a familial thing. But if you can try to do the best you can in eating well exercising, you know, not having a bunch of sweets and and watching your carbs and all that kind of stuff, you might have had some kind of an impact on all this that wouldn't have landed you in the doctor's office anyway. So, you know, we have to consider all that stuff. Doctors have to consider all that stuff. I consider all that stuff when I'm talking to somebody in an in-home assessment. Hopefully, then the doctor can give you some ideas on the best way to care for yourself or the person that you're trying to help and how to manage their symptom the best you can. The bottom line is it's trying to give you a baseline and a basis to plan your future and hopefully tell you that you've done everything that you can do to uh, plan for the future and make that person as healthy and happy as you can possibly make it. Make them. Now, again, going kind of back to the beginning, how would you even find somebody to do that evaluation? A lot of times people go to their family physicians. I do not recommend that. If you do, ask them for a referral to a specialist, to a neuro neurological doctor. Your neurology department is going to do so much better clinical work. They're going to do everything I just talked about for the first, you know, 25, 26 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever it was and give you the best evaluation that you can get. What you don't want is to walk in and have a doctor say, well, you have, you know, sort of mild cognitive impairment, dementia. Nothing you can do. Good luck. Bye. 15 minutes later, send you to the Alzheimer's Association. They'll give you a list of doctors. They'll give you a list of lawyers. They'll say, get your finances in order and wish you good luck and send you on your way. I don't think that's helpful. Even your local hospital can give you the names of physicians who are interested and can adequately evaluate people with the dementing type illnesses, it's really good to go to maybe a teaching hospital or a medical school in your area if they have some interest in various dementia diseases. That's a whole lot better. And dementia centers and memories disorders clinics have opened all across the country. So if you can find one of them, even within a five-state region, uh, Ask your local physician about their reputation. Are they good? Are the patients uh, in any studies? Are they managed care programs? What, what can you expect? Do they know anything about them? That might make you feel a little bit better about the whole thing. And before you even schedule an evaluation, ask about, what physician is going to work with you and what procedures they are going to use. 
and go back and listen to this podcast and write some of this stuff down because typically these are all the things that are offered to you. So that will help you to try to, you know, have a real preliminary conversation and make sure that you're talking to a person that understands what you're going through and is able to evaluate you and identify what the problem is. And then once you do, how do you know whether you have an accurate diagnosis? In in the end, really, you just have to settle on a doctor that you feel like you can trust and you feel like they have done everything they can to evaluate you with all the things I talked about, you know, this podcast. And then I recommend you rely on their judgment. If they've done a really, really thorough examination of you, you could do a second evaluation, but probably what you get is going to be pretty accurate. And then do what you can to understand something about all the terminology, all the different procedures, what is known about the various dementia diseases. Does any of them sound like some of the problems you're having? And if you're getting any, you know, differing diagnosis from people, um, discuss it with your doctor. It's important that you feel that you're getting an accurate diagnosis. And if a doctor makes a, a diagnosis of Alzheimer's and they don't do a complete evaluation, that should give you pause to think that maybe it's not possible for you to get an accurate diagnosis because I think you need that complete assessment. I do. I think you need them to rule out any other things that are going on. You need them to ask you those judgment and reasoning questions. You need to have an intellectual thought process conversation with them so you know that they are asking you questions that uh, are causing you to troubleshoot and think. We need to know what your blood levels are and what your vitamin levels are and what your general condition is so that you know, we understand if you're high on sugar, you have diabetes, that could be a contributing factor. You need all of that. You need all of that. So if you don't get that complete assessment, you don't get those testings that rule out other conditions, seek another opinion. Get a second opinion. It won't hurt. It could help. I do want to I do want to say before I'm done today that you can hear on the radio, on TV, commercials that there are people with similar symptoms to yours who are being miraculously cured or hearing statements like Alzheimer's can be reversed Senility can be cured. Um, There's been a lot of confusion around that because there are some dementias that are reversible, like I said, and because dementia and delirium are sometimes confused. There are also unscrupulous individuals who offer bogus cures I have been extremely vocal about the doctor from Southern Southern California that just pisses me off with his, you know, eight months of um, having a ridiculous keto diet to an extreme where people lose, an, I mean, an exorbitant amount of weight when they don't even need to. 
and uh, that's in conjunction with that supplements can cure your Alzheimer's. It is not real. When when they do find a cure for Alzheimer's, it will be big news. It will be stopping every news channel. It will be breaking news like you have never heard before. And that's why it's important for you to get an accurate diagnosis and work with a doctor you can trust and make you feel assured that everything that can be done is being done and that you are being informed and you understand what the testing results were and maybe get you into legitimate research, you know, from major research institutions and things like that and, you know, get everything Address that way. I don't want you spending $20,000 on those unscrupulous people only to find out your progression of your disease is still getting worse. I hope this has been helpful. As I said, I received several letters saying, can you explain what an evaluation would look like? And I wanted to make sure today that I was really thorough about telling you everything that could be available to you if you go to a research center, if you go to a memories disorders clinic, um, or if you can go to a school who, uh, an academic uh, school hospital that is researching these types of things. They're all over the country. There's like 24 or 25 of them all over the country. And so often we can get to... Uh, what, where we want to go. We can get that baseline. We can understand where the person is with the, with the disease, even through telehealth, if you are in a place that is far, far away. All right. I would appreciate it if you would also send me emails if I've told you something that makes sense to you and uh, that this has been helpful to you and that you might utilize these processes and have a better, clear understanding of what your testing is going to be like. And for me, I think it would be really good to do all those testing opportunities just to make sure you get the clearest picture you can get. And nobody else that is not qualified will tell you what they think is going on. All right. I wish you all well. I hope this has been helpful. And I look forward to seeing you next week on Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. You've been listening to Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz. To learn more about her resources, services, classes, or to book speaking engagements, visit Jill's website at summitresiliencetraining.com. A new podcast drops every Tuesday, so join us as we learn more about dementias, resilience, and overcoming obstacles to find a positive outcome. Dementia Resilience with Jill Lorenz can be found on your favorite podcast provider. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. Musical and technical support provided by Brian Hunter. See you next week.